the first step is to say, what are your goals here? What do you want to accomplish with this business? Everybody wants more money. Most people want more time off and everybody wants more work that they love. Some people love the day-to-day -day work of maybe practicing law or building houses or whatever it is. And how big do you need to be? Bigger is not always everybody's goal after a certain point. There's an entire generation of Americans who no longer care about prestige, titles, work travel, fancy offices, and lunches. Welcome to Mundane Millionaires, a podcast for this generation of small business owners who want to set their ego aside and focus on what matters, family, community, quality of life, and cash flows. In each episode, Eric Pasifici and Kevin Henderson uncover what it takes to get a little money in the bank, control your time, and invest in building great families and lives. Let's get started. Eric, on today's episode of Monday Millionaires, we talked to John Cipher and we went we went deep on his expertise about systematizing business processes and how to get time back as an entrepreneur to focus on things that matter. Great conversation. What were your, what, what were your takeaways? You're so serious. I love it. No, it was a great, it was a good conversation. Je so John's background, he, he is a seasoned entrepreneur dating all the way back to the 1970s. He's done a lot of different things. He had a remote business before remote businesses existed with a business somewhat akin to a Netflix model he talks about, and then transitioned in the 1990s into business coaching, where he's been ever since. And he is a good coach. Like he is a, you're at one, you need to get to five. How do you do it? Coach, right? And I try to push him during the interview to give us numbers, quantify things. And he pushes back, pushes being everything's qualitative. Everything's about building processes and systems. And as an entrepreneur ourselves, this is exactly the type of thing that you need to hear. That was my biggest takeaway. This whole conversation was how much I would love working with John in my own business, right? Super actionable advice and thoughts and just kind of wetting that appetite for how, how much value he provides to entrepreneurs and how thoughtful he is about how to help people scale businesses. Because, you know, we, we all talk about the entrepreneurs hitting that wall and not being able to go from level one to two. And I think there's a lot that people are going to get out of this episode. So, yeah, well, and, it, and the, the, the biggest takeaway for me is he talks about entrepreneurs, the typical person not being a good entrepreneur, the right. typical business not being a well-run business, at least from his perspective, hundreds of data points and helping people who have gotten as far as they can go. Right. Because I think that the vast majority of us starting from zero, building a business, there's a point where you've gotten as far as you can go on your own. And right. the reality is that that's probably not the goal that you have in mind. And I push him a little bit too on what is the ideal goal. I really press him at the end <laughs> to get specific on goals and, and, and what he thinks about. He tells us what he thinks about young people buying businesses, SMB, Twitter, how you should be thinking about business diligence as well and the different buckets of areas of businesses to, to be evaluating. So a really great interview that frankly, I'm honestly listening, looking forward to listening back to myself. Yeah, hundred percent. I think our listeners will probably listen twice themselves. There's just so much to get out of this. So enjoy the episode of Mundane Millionaires. All right. Well, John, it's, it's good to have you on. Good to be chatting with you. Likewise. Um, been looking forward to this one for a while. So you 
you run i want to get the 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 name here correctly is it or correct is it ceo boot camp is that that's correct run? that's correct and it's really a, a name for my coaching and consulting business. I was looking for a good URL and that one came available. So, I mean, <laughs> there, I think there are a lot of businesses that get named that way, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. What's the, it, it sounds, name? sounds more of a program than it is. Although I do, I do also some programs with clients where we yeah. go in we have a project with a beginning, middle and an end and all that. But normally it's would, just individual the, coaching. Can't visual for me. I mean, it immediately takes me to this fictitious boot camp where you've got CEOs firing people and right. you know, <laughs> one meet to the net. I love it. Yeah, where's home for you? I'm in Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh, okay. Pennsylvania. Got so. it. And we'll get into it, but I mean, you've, you've moved around a little bit, right? Are, I have moved around a lot. Are you originally from Pittsburgh and you've ended no. up back home or? I grew up outside of New York city, Westchester County. Okay. A town called Ryan, New York, which is famous for its playground, playland amusement park, which if you ever saw the movie Big, when he goes yeah. to get to the fortune teller, the Zoltar, that yep. is, that shot is on the boardwalk at Playland. Oh, interesting. So, okay. Yeah. Oh, and, that's uh, funny. Yeah. I followed my wife. Everybody in Pittsburgh either never left, left and came back or followed a spouse. And my wife was born not too far from here, was faculty at Pitt, was one of the first women athletic trainers. She moved to Connecticut. I moved to Connecticut. We didn't know each other. Both got divorced. Both met after that. And at one point, the kids were gone. We were looking around saying, what are we doing in the suburbs? We like cities. Yeah. And looked yeah. around for some cities and found this one. So You didn't pick New York City? No, we were looking for A friend of mine moved to New York, and he said, here's what happens. You move to New York. Your net worth goes down by a half, and so does the amount of space that you have. Yeah. <laughs> My wife and I idealize this idea of, you know, retiring to, to New York City because it is it's one of my favorite cities. But I mean, it's it's tongue in cheek at this point when we, yeah. you know, laugh about it because you're, you're right. I mean, you to retire to 400 square feet and, you know, two and a half million dollars on the Upper West Side. You know, that doesn't make a lot of sense. But. Especially from Texas. Right. There's I don't think there's a bigger paradigm right. shift than Texas to go to New York City. John, you were, and you were in Texas for a while, too, right? You'd I was. Your... I, I lived in Plano for 10 years. I, I started a company at the end. Well, I had another company before that, but at the end, I started this video rental thing, which we sold movie libraries to apartments, and they used them as a marketing tool. If you rent an apartment here, you can borrow the movies for free, and we change them out every month. So we were like Netflix before there was Netflix. Interesting. And most of our customers were in the South and Southwest at that point. But I wanted to get back to where there were four seasons. And I said, well, there's got to be, there are companies where there's a headquarters in one state and a branch office somewhere else. And if they can do it, I can do it. It didn't make sense to move the company because of where our customers were. So I said, well, I'll move up. This was in 1993. So it was before the internet was what it is today. And literally right. they would overnight me data tapes so that I could see what was going on. And I came back when I needed to, but eventually I got it to where it was firing in all cylinders and I was working 20 hours a month, maybe, and running the thing long distance. And I, you know, I, it was, it was fun. It was fun. That's why it got me to Connecticut. 
John, let's let's back up and let's set the stage for this episode, Kevin. We have John on the show today because John is, you were an entrepreneur. You had built businesses starting all the way back in the late 1970s. Mm-hmm. And you, you transitioned at some point in your career to business advisor, you're now CEO, coach. And your emphasis is on processizing or systemizing businesses and helping people get to that next level through automating processes the, the way any good business would want to. Your first business, though, was a failure. Yes. My only failure, it was a waterbed store that me and two buddies started. We didn't know anything about retail. We didn't know anything about what we should do. We thought, hey, if we open it, hey, they will come. And they did not. <laughs> and it, the only person that ever made money was our, our store manager that we hired. And I thought at one point, we should have just found some random dude on the street and said, here, take a bunch of money and go away. <laughs> We would have ended up in the same place. So how, but, how long was that arc, right? I mean, how, how long from kind of launching to finally making the realization, like, guys, we got to, we got to shutter this thing. It was probably a couple of years. We okay. were all doing, you know, some other stuff on the side or, or things. And, um, is this you in front of this? That is me in front of the waterbed store in Fort Collins, Colorado. Amazing. So for those of you who are, who are watching on YouTube, you, you can see this, this picture of John in a, in a cowboy hat and a flannel, I guess that's in Fort Collins, Colorado. How did yeah. you, so, but you're, you're from originally from New York. I was bumping around after college, didn't know what I wanted to do, didn't know where I wanted to live. So I tried a bunch of different places and picked up some things and, you know, tried to make a buck just to stay alive for a while. The thing, the next thing I did that worked out that made money was actually window cleaning. And I saw somebody doing this. And so I said, I think I could do that. And then it's, and it's not a big, you know, time commitment. And I, I got a couple of supplies. It would cost me like 20 or 50 bucks or something. And I knocked on a door of an ice cream parlor and I said, here, I'd like to clean your windows. She said, how much? I said, I don't know, 10 bucks. I think it was. And she said, great. So I cleaned them, got 10 bucks. I said, I'll come back next week. She said, sure. By the time I came back next week, it turned out she did not have the authority to hire me. Her boyfriend was the window cleaner and she was mad at him. So that's why she hired me. But by then I had made so many sales and any entrepreneur knows the thrill of making a sale. I'm like, I don't need you. I got tons of these things. I don't need you. And I especially don't need your relationship. to Exactly. I'm not, yeah, I'm not getting in the middle of that. And, um, you know, at one point I, at this point I had grown and had a crew and I was inside of an office building and I looked on a guy's desk and I saw a requisition for a $2,000 a year raise that had to get signed off by all these people. And I thought, you know, if I needed 2000 extra bucks, it would take me zero time to go hustle. And I didn't have to have anybody sign off on it. And I thought, man, this is the life, you know, <laughs> just that freedom. And, and that made a difference. The, the thing, as that grew, what I realized at the time, and I know there's some, some really good people on SMB Twitter that do that kind of work right now. But at the time, the people that I could hire tended to be drunks and the ones that were any good, they were out on their own. It, it was not a hard business to replicate. And I thought, if this scales up, I'm going to have six, seven, ten trucks on the road, and half of these guys are going to be drunk and showing up or not showing up. 
I said, I don't need that. And Dallas was a hub of the technical society of technical computing, which was technical writers and illustrators. I ended up doing some of that as a freelancer. And that became the closest I ever had to a job. I worked for mobile oil on Harry Hines Boulevard in Dallas. Okay. And I was still, I was technically a contractor, so I can still say I've never had a job, but I had to show up at the office, one of these 40 hour week gigs, and I still had my window cleaning company. And this was back before cell phones. This was when pagers were a thing. And most of the work I got from a couple of janitorial companies. And one of the guys kept saying, why don't you get a pager so I can reach you? <laughs> and I kept saying, well, I will, but I can't right now because I was at this other gig and I didn't want having right. to call him in the middle. I would go see the guys, see the crew during my lunch hour or after work or whatever. And that's when I would do my bids and all that stuff. And then that's when I started the video thing, which was actually from a buddy of mine. And he the had video, a video store. See, what year is the video thing? The video thing was called Video Rental Service. It was out of Plano, Texas. But that's, that's in the really, early, some, now we're flashing for the 1990s, right? So 1990s, yeah. And right, so we, for a trip is this late 70s and then we're all the way, okay, keep going. Oh, yeah. So in, in that 10 period, I'd gotten married, I had moved to Texas and a bunch of other things. And so that was, we started that and we said this, this could really go big and as most startups do, it took much longer to do and much more money. And we couldn't, he couldn't stay in it. I didn't, I couldn't get the, him to buy me out. So I had to buy him out. And I went back and said, shit, now what have I done? <laughs> and it turned out it was really just a long sales cycle in the apartment industry. And it eventually turned around. And that's when I picked up and moved it. It was two years. It was really two years before I took any money out of it. But about that time, I was ready to move and it was, it was solid business at that point. I could see where it was going. And my accountant, after I moved, he said, this is going so, so well, you should move to Russia. <laughs> and he was joking, but uh, so yeah. I'm a, I want to circle back to a second in, in the processes point and, and things yeah. and, and, you know, circle back to some of these early experiences. But, but before we do that, I just want to drill in a little more on this video rental business. Cause if, if I recall correctly from your bio, that business was around for 20 something years. Is that right? Yes. So, so, so you were spanning, I mean, you spanned, I presume, correct me if I'm wrong, VHS to DVD into the streaming world. Definitely DVDs into the streaming world. And I saw the internet coming. I saw the streaming coming because I'm kind of a techie guy. And I thought this is going away and it did, but not nearly as fast as I thought. And well, I think that's what surprised me most about your bio. I was like, wait, there's, there's no way this business lasted to 2016. Wait, it gets, it gets better. So 2016, we were, by that time we'd moved to Pittsburgh, running it long distance. We had two, we were down to two guys in, at the, in the warehouse. And basically the last year we were just working for them. They were the only ones that made any money. Sure. Our lease ran out and we thought we have 130 customers still. And I hate to give, just to throw it away. What can I do with this? And we thought about, well, we could probably get another year out of it, but we couldn't find a place to lease it for, to, that would give us a lease for a year. Cause all these, it's industrial warehouse spaces. Yeah, they, want they want three to five, five years and all this. Renewals. And yeah. So 
I, then I talked to my son who lives in Colorado, spends as much time as he can skiing and does some gigs. He's a great salesperson and he does some things on the side whenever he can. And I said, if you can find a place with a lease that's flexible, you can take this over. You can do what these two guys are making. You can make at least as much as them. And he took it over. So in 2016, I tore it apart, put it in a truck. He and I moved it up to Colorado. He kept the thing going. Wow. He, and to and this will get even weirder. At one point, it got so small, he moved it to his house. But he still had these customers. And he said, so then he was doing something. He was really trying to rent out his place to an agency. He had a six-month deal where they would put in people that needed shelter for temporary services, you know, women's shelter, sure. that kind of thing. Yeah. They said, we'll pay you up front six months and you just have to leave. And he said, okay, I'll live in my camper for six months. I'll have a cool time doing this. I'll have to shut the business down. I said, by now, I've been on SMB Twitter for years and seeing all these people buying companies, selling companies. I said, you could sell it. It's a, yeah. it, it, it takes him like... A, one day a month. I said, you right. have an income stream from one day a month. Somebody would pay for that. He goes, really? I said, yeah, give it a shot. He sold the damn thing. Sweet. And as, as far as I know, it might be still going. He listed on Biz Buy Sell or how did he sell it? No, he just knew somebody. And, uh, you know, and, and he, they were paying him off by the month. It wasn't any kind of a deal, you know. It wasn't yeah, something. Yeah. Yeah, no, it was nothing. But still, um, he got some, he got some. Yeah, he got some money for it, and so it was like you, you took a cut of that, right, John? Oh yeah, obviously. I, I took a finder's fee. You know, <laughs> I love it. Twenty five just a small. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He, and he buys me dinner if I go up. Whatever, you know. That's um, that's hilarious. So, so that John, is. So, that, so we get to the part where you transition from entrepreneurship to coaching, right? Because okay. at some point you say, "Hey, I'm." Listen, I've built businesses. I've processed, you know, I've, I've run those businesses remotely before that was a thing. I, I think I'm going to go start telling people what to do with their businesses. You well, make it sound much more romantic than it does. So after I moved the bit, after I moved myself to Connecticut and kept the business in Texas, somebody I used to work with called up and said, you ought to look into this thing called coaching. You'd be great at it. This was the mid nineties. It hadn't become a buzzword. I said, what's that? And started looking into it, found some people that were training coaches. I kind of liked it and was part of a group that founded the International Coach Federation. I ended up being their fourth president in 1998. But I started coaching other business owners. What I saw was because I was physically distant from the company, I had a very different perspective than the people who were in the weeds because everything depended on them. When an emergency came up, they dumped all the other stuff, they fixed the problem, they went back to all the other stuff, and they never prevented the problem from happening again. They never systemized anything. And I didn't have that luxury or, or that desire, actually, because I get bored really easily. So if I'm managing something that's routine every day, that's not where you want me. And so I started helping them systemize things to get themselves out of the day-to-day what I realized in doing that, working with different companies, most of them in the USA, but I have worked with some in Europe, all in lots of different industries. Every company has systems 
that are very similar. I wouldn't say exactly the same, but very similar, except for the product or service that they sell. So systems about people, systems about hiring, about money, about planning, all that stuff is very similar. And if you're the one-man shop or the quintessential two guys in a garage, you're doing all that stuff yourself. As you right. scale up, if you can systemize it, you can offload it to other people and grow. Otherwise, you're what I call the grandmother in the kitchen. You make great food. You don't have a recipe. It's wonderful for Thanksgiving dinner, but it's lousy if you want to have a restaurant. And those systems are very, very similar, like I said, across all, all industries. And so that's where I started packaging it into what has now become CEO Bootcamp. So, but let's, let's back up now. So I'm an entrepreneur. I start a business. I'm a great cook, right? I've got a lot of passion for cooking. I make a hell of a Thanksgiving dinner. And I, now I want to start a business based on that. How do I get from that place? Because imagine, you know, imagine I, you know, I, I need to scale a little bit, right? In order to have the revenue to reinvest into the business, to start building process, processes and that, that will naturally thin your margins. How do you, how do you get from zero to one? Well, let me, let me just interrupt for a second and take one, one step further. Suppose hypothetically you're a remote professional services law firm built on social media that, no, I'm kidding. I'm, I'm, I'm kidding, but yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question, Eric. So uh, John, so at the startup phase, you have to do it all. You have to be that person. You're the one man band. You're doing everything at some point you have to decide, is this what I want to do? Do I want to run basically a freelance business, a, a solopreneur, or do I want to scale? And so you hire somebody to do something. And at that point, you have to figure out how to instruct them to do what you do. There's two ways basically to make that move. You can hire somebody good who just says, oh man, they're terrific. They know what to do. They figure it out. I don't even have to tell them. And that person is usually higher priced and harder to replicate. Or you can start saying, here's how I do what I do. And here are the pieces to take the Thanksgiving dinner example. I don't need to be chopping the vegetables. I can train somebody else to do that. And I will move on to something else. And you scale it up that way. By the time people hire me, they're usually at 10 to 50 employees. They have scaled it up enough. Many of them still have everything in their heads. And that's when they start to go nuts. They're working around the clock. They, they know there's a bigger vision for their company, but they don't know how to get there. Right. And the way to get there is to say, okay, look, these are the, what I call the seven buckets. All the things that a company needs to do all the outputs that people produce fall into seven buckets. One is making what customers want to buy or the product, service, whatever it is. The other is selling, finding new customers to do that. Those are all repeatable, scalable processes. They, there's four buckets that I call support, which go to making, keep the making and the selling going on. So that's people, money, information, and a checklist of things that if you don't pay attention to them can blow up. So facilities, compliance, technical yeah. support, IT, that kind of thing. And then the seventh bucket is grow. So grow is the planning, the KPIs, the goal setting, 
and there's processes to doing all that. So you figure out at that point who's doing what, and this is the same process for a searcher who buys a company that's already going because at that scale, companies are happening. All the stuff is being done. The question is, is it being done in a repeatable, scalable way? And well, so to push a little further on that, it, it seems to me because I think you're right. The, the initial entrepreneur's dilemma, right. Is the entrepreneur trying to do all seven buckets, right. Mm-hmm. And eventually you're going to burn out. And so you start to learn by systematizing some of these buckets, you can rely on other people that are expert at sales or at people or at money. Right. But what I've seen is that usually that means you start to delegate those other buckets to other people and that entrepreneur is starting to focus in on one or maybe two buckets. I presume in order to really scale, and so I'd I'd like to hear your thoughts about this, eventually that entrepreneur needs to no longer lead any of those seven buckets, and they're really just an executive managing each of them. Correct. And And I feel like that's one of the bigger kind of sticking points that I see is an entrepreneur that never really steps out of making the widget or the sales or the people function to manage experts in every single one of those buckets. Yeah. So you're describing what we call stage one, stage two, and stage three companies. So stage one, the entrepreneur, the owner is doing customer facing work. They're making the stuff they're selling and they have, if they hire people, which they usually do, those people help them do that. So it's your quintessential plumber with a crew, but they're really there. They're, they're selling all the jobs or they're overseeing the, the crew, et cetera. Stage two, there's a switch and they have people to sell. They have people to oversee. They have a team leader to see the production, et cetera. And the people at the top, the owner, is focused inward now on building the systems, replicating the business model, scaling that part up. And so they're managing the managers, they're hiring better, they're training better, they're out yeah. of the day-to-day of, of the actual work, the customer-facing work. Stage three is then they say, wait a minute, I don't even want to do that. So they hire a general manager or a COO or a president, whatever the title is, somebody who's got P&L responsibility to make that thing make money. And they go on to do whatever they want. They could travel around the world. They could start another company. They could buy another company. They could run a hold co. But they're they not even... Bring down to visit the Titanic. I mean, there's... Too soon, Eric. Too soon. Too soon for... Sorry. Yeah. But they could go to Mars. You know, we'll talk there. There you go. <laughs> that's all, that's all deeper. Yeah. No, it, yeah. It, it's interesting only because I, I like I, I, and we've talked about this before. I think like I'm at that inflection point in our business, right? Of trying to figure out where to bridge out of being the kind of expert in seven areas rather than more of a strategic leader and relying on others to execute those areas. And I, I, I think that's like that, that first kind of really big wall to go to that next level. 
which I think is what makes the ETA space in particular, where we do a lot of our work so intriguing is I think you get a lot of buyers who are finding businesses that are right up against that wall and yes. bring to the table the ability to go to that phase two and really start to accelerate growth. And interestingly, I'm starting to get some ETA clients, some of whom you have sent me, Eric, I appreciate that. But they have taken over, some of them have actually taken over from absentee owners or owners yep. who were, yep. uh, if they haven't moved away, which they don't have to, but they're not working 40 hours a week and they just pop in. But the people that they have hired are still those grandmas. They haven't systemized things. They are still doing it by, you know, heroic effort and they're very good at what they do, but they're, if you look at the tasks that they do, most of those tasks can be done by lower level people, or in some cases, software. They just haven't broken it out into their, into those brackets. And so it's then, how do you do that so that the company can scale? Because usually the people that they bought the company from maxed out how much they feel like they could scale it. Yeah. And, uh, and it, to dying most, uh, to, to back up to Kevin's point, I think our, our business, we're, we're a one on the way to being a two. We have a really good team. Like we have a really high quality core team of people, superstars, you know, people we can't, we can't, we cannot continue to scale with this level of quality because we won't be able to afford them. You know, they're just, they're terrific people or keep them. And, and now we need to be a little bit more strategic in how we develop and identifying categories one through seven and systemizing and, you know, I think we're surviving on having a really good team of ones. That makes sense in a bunch of different ways. And Kevin in particular is interesting because I'm probably a little bit too quick to trust and delegate and Kevin's a little bit too reluctant. And I think there's probably a a middle ground that we need, that him and I need to find. (laughs) There's probably some deep psychological analysis to do there to, to partners, but anyway. Yeah. So the, the thing about a good system is typically they break into subsystems or places where you can see if it's going off the rails while there's still time to fix it. I don't know exactly how that plays out in the law, in the law firm, but you know, I know CPA firms, nobody does taxes without it being reviewed by somebody else before right. it's sent out. At those points, those are the places you can say, oh, okay, now we put another set of eyes on this. And that gives you a place to say, okay, I can pull back a little bit because I know if somebody screwed up, there's going to be time to fix it. And the other thing in, in a lot of legal work, depending on the specialty, you can delegate some of the initial things, some of the maybe initial documents to somebody else who, who may not be as sophisticated and you have somebody else planning, here's how the approach is going to go. I don't know if that, you know, when you get into the negotiations, that's a little different because somebody, we're, you know, we're very good lawyers, but our issue from, from day one, John has been, we're lawyers, right? We're not business people. And so, you know, trying to transition from just doing legal work to building a business, building an SMB has been, you know, a fantastically interesting experience and it's gone really well. I mean, all things considered, but you know, certainly it could always be going better. 
Tell us, how, so you've got seven categories. You, you, you are engaged by somebody to help them build their business. How do you tackle that? Do you say, hey, let's take a step back and do a deep dive on all seven, or do, we, do you work through one at a time? What's the actual practical approach? The, the first step is to say, what are your goals here? What, what do you want to accomplish with this business? Do you want more time off? Everybody wants more money. Most people want more time off and everybody wants work that they love, more work that they love. So let's say, what, what are those things? What is the work that you love? Some people love the day-to-day -day work of maybe practicing law or building houses or whatever it is. And how do you do more of that and scale the company? And how big do you need to be? That's another question. Just bigger is not always everybody's goal after a certain point. Then you say, what's working and what's not? What are this? So how, so we start with the systems of selling. I, that's where I start because nothing happens if you don't make a sale. So how does selling work? Who the first part of selling is marketing. It's outreach to people that don't even know you exist. What do, how does that work for you? How does that work for your company? Now, you guys do it all on Twitter. I, I don't know if you do it all on Twitter, but you do a lot of no, it on Twitter. No, no, no. Let's just be 100% clear here and nip this right in the bud. We do not advertise, solicit. on <laughs> so Everything we do is for educational and informational purposes only with no intention to receive pecuniary benefit. Please continue, John. I'm, I'm so, sure that is true, and yet it happens anyway. <laughs> we're, we're also... We're also pivoting entirely to threads uh, from, from yes, Twitter. That's right. I actually deleted my Twitter account this morning. So uh, <laughs> I've got 437 followers. I'm actually quite proud of that, as a matter of fact. Right. Everyone's wondered aloud if, if, if Twitter were to blow up and I had to start over from scratch, what would that look like? You know, how yeah. would it actually go? Well, you don't have to find out, I think. <laughs> I have posted no less than 300 pictures of pepperoni pizza in the last 24 hours. So there you go. Pizza, check out threads. This is going to, when this comes out, threads will be, it'll be interesting. By the time that, because the world is rapidly changing. 48 yes. hours ago, I didn't know threads existed. And now I'm like, this is going to defeat Twitter. So we'll see by the time this comes out, all of this information we're saying may sound stupid. Yeah. But yeah, so I want to circle back to one thing that's pertaining to you guys. What I've seen with professions, lawyers, CPAs, coaches, all kinds of other things. There are really good practitioners who hate to market. They, they hate to sell. They don't want to get out there. And if you can develop a, a, a stream of customers and clients, it's easier to hire those people and slot them into doing good work. And it's just a different mindset. It's a different kind of person who likes to do that kind of thing. And so there's yeah. a benefit there. We almost could make this podcast, Kevin, about scaling a law firm, right? Because, John, you know, to be candid, we have an open question. You talk about scaling a professional services business. Is that even possible, right? Is it even possible? Like, the, this business has the capacity to be a giant business, I think. But in terms of headcount and revenue, which is in an important In terms of goal. market demand for a business of this nature, I think that the marketplace is there. I think the client demand is there. I think the need is there. A tremendous wind at our back, but the nature of our business makes scaling it incredibly difficult. It's very relationship driven. We have a lot of legal, legal ethics literally tell us you are not a business, you are a profession. 
and you are not meant to scale. You are meant so to individually provide equal access to justice for people in the world, which is fantastic, right? But we're, we're a business, right? So it's, we're a fascinating case study to see what is possible. And of course, well, we, we may never know because Kevin and I are going to fumble the bag, but the rest of our team. So, so, but there are, there are very large law firms, but the corporate, if that's even the right word, structure of which is very different from the structure of most for-profit businesses. Be clear, because I they, those are scaled businesses, but those are not good businesses, right? Right. So the, there are no can we build a good business? And I, that's that's an open question. There's no corollary to multi-billion-dollar businesses that have, you know, eight hundred partners jockeying for the right office and the right share of profits with, with within the business. Like it's 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 unique. I mean, it just is. But let's talk, let's ignore for a moment the the legal restrictions that you have and look at other professions. There are, let's say doctors, there are companies like Kaiser Permanente where all of the doctors are paid a salary. That's very different than a private medical practice. And they are encouraged in those companies like Kaiser to share specialties, to transfer patients from one person to another based on what's going to serve the patient best, not if I get the most hours with this patient I, or do the most services because I'm paid fee for service. And I think there might be an analogy to a law firm to doing that where I don't know, like I said, of the legal restrictions. You would know that more than I, but if so, somebody engages you, can they be moved around to the people who do the best work? So it's an interesting question, John, and and we should probably move move off this point in a minute because I think we probably have one listener that's a lawyer. So. But, <laughs> but but it's fine because I and think he, and we hate him too. It's, and <laughs> we hate whoever. We're trying to shake him. Or, so. We don't yeah. like. So my first law firm, which is kind of a story storied law firm in America called Cravath has historically been one of the only law firms in America with lockstep compensation. Your, your, whatever the profits of the firm ended up being the end of the year, you were compensated a fixed percentage based on your class year in the partnership, right? Younger partners got less, you know, senior partners got more sunset partners kind of approaching retirement, it would kind of taper off the back end of a bell, bell curve. And there, they'd done that for over 200 years. And their whole theory was exactly this, right? That, that we make enough money that when you spread it over a career, everyone's very well compensated. It encourages, like, if I'm not the best lawyer, cause I'm an M&A lawyer, and this is really a securities issue. I can send it to Eric, the securities lawyer, and he's going to take care of that client. And that's that's been what they've done for 200 and some odd years until about three or four years ago. They have had they have been having such a hard time keeping their best talent who can at any given year be making two to five million dollars in Cravath's former lockstep position. But they're such an all star that if they go to any other law firm that'll be pay based on book and production, they're making 
or $10 million, they're losing those partners. They, they keep the best talent. And a couple of years ago, they, they, they did away for the first time in over 200 years, they did away with that lockstep system. Eric, I, I see your, I see your lips moving, but you're muted, unfortunately. So I'm you know, sure it's, it was prob- it's probably point. for the best, Kevin. It's honestly, probably <laughs> for the best. anyway, I read lips. So I don't know that that's true. <laughs> No, I was yeah. just saying, but the, the the Kirkland guys are ten to twenty million, and they're the ones that have upset the Apple curtain, the marketplace, yeah. right? And yeah, and, that, and that's where that's where the crevasse superstars. So the, the are, notion of like you know, and, and that's the you know the law firm business, they're distributing out everything before there's no enterprise value, right? So you right. go build if I if we go build a baby Kirkland and Ellis, or even just a typical medium sized law firm, we'll have somewhere between fifty to three hundred lawyers to manage, and no enterprise value that's saleable, which makes zero sense in my opinion. You're, you're, you're essentially, you built a hundred million dollar SMB that you can sell for pennies on the dollar. Yeah. Listen, we need to have John back on Eric when we launch our, how to scale a law firm yeah. podcast. Yeah. So um, my, think- one of my initial coaching engagements, when I first got into it, there was a company in Florida whose name I can't remember now, but the, the law or the, the bar association rules about marketing were changing yeah. and lawyers were able to market. And so they gave a one day seminar on, it was for a CLE credits about how you can now market your blah, blah, blah. And then they upsold a coaching program that helped you apply those things. And they outsourced that to people like me with the idea that we would help them do the marketing according to their plan, but also if the marketing was successful, then they would have operational issues, which we could also help with. Right. And I had a client in Fort Lauderdale for eight years, maybe. And we ne- for longest time, we never met. Did it all over the phone. One day I was, I was coming down there or I went down to see him anyway or whatever, no ne- real reason to. And he said, well, I want to show you around took me to a house. He said, this is where I lived when we first started working together. Let me take you to another house, which was a much bigger house. Then I moved here and let me show you where I live now. And it was this house with a casita and all this kind of stuff, you know, but it was around the, the logistics of building a firm, but you're right. There's no enterprise value. If he had started with a large house and worked his way down to a little house, he's right, like, right. Josh. <laughs> <laughs> Josh. Yeah. So, so. Let, let, let's take what we've been talking about and back up for a second john i'm 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 curious so take us back to 1979 in the waterbed store and and put aside how bad of an idea waterbeds are at least in my opinion what like in retrospect 2013 2023 look at me i'm trying to make us 10 years younger 2023 john what are you looking at in that you know quote unquote failed business yeah. with the benefit of hindsight and knowing systems and things like that, was it, could it have been a profitable business? Like what were you doing wrong there that led to its eventual demise that some of these things we've been talking about could have addressed? So one of my buddies was a manager of a place that made these waterbeds and he wanted to franchise. And the guy said, okay, you can do this. What he didn't know and what I, none of us knew was how do you market? How do you bring a retail furniture store to market? How much should you spend on advertising? Who is, and for some reason, I guess he hadn't had to do that just being a store manager, 
the other people did all that. So sure. we didn't know anything about that. That was one thing. We didn't know anything about time management. I remember like spending hours between the three of us making decisions that were inconsequential. And we should have just said, George, you're in charge of this. You figure it out. We don't care. You know? Yeah. So we didn't know anything about that. And the other thing that was happening was inflation was coming up and people joke, you know, people are like freaked out now because interest rates are 7%. It got as high as 18% back then. And the, the month that we opened our store was when interest rates were hurting the furniture market nationwide. So there was something we couldn't do anything about, which was sure. part of it. So, but part of it in running any business is knowing what can you control, what can't you control, and how do you control the things you can control to cushion yourself against the things you can't. But, you know, and, and back to the thing that you said earlier, where do you start? I start with, I don't work with startups. So I start with companies that by definition are working. They're functional. They're not in default. They're, they're making a profit. So all the systems are working. It's now, how are those systems working? And I either start with the one that seems to be in crisis or sales and say, how do the sales work? How can we make those sales more effective, more profitable, et cetera? And then that's going to affect your production. So how do we make those as effective and profitable? That gets into how do you hire people? How do you manage people? How do you track the money? Most of them are making money. They're, they're sending out invoices. They're collecting money. They're not always getting the information that they need from that money, which is where the CFO function comes in. Right. The, the, the three things that I see missing most in companies of, I'll say, a million to 10 million in revenue are the CFO function, sales management. Even if they have salespeople, even if they have a team, they're not being managed very well. Each individual salesperson is kind of their own little thing. And strategic planning. They don't know how to make a plan that will be useful for people throughout the year. Right. Those, those are the three big ones that I see missing. But sometimes there's one that's a crisis and we go in and fix that as well. And which one do you typically see, see being the most, uh, set aside sales, which one do you typically see being the most accretive to the typical business? Define accretive for me. Value enhancing. Oh, value enhancing. Well, it really depends on the market and the company and how they're serving that market. Sometimes they have lots of products out there that aren't making any money and they just don't know which. And in that yeah. case, they need to, they need the CFO analysis that tells them, oh, you can dump these or you should focus more on these. Often it's management. It's people are managing by the seat of their pants. They're trying to be in, nobody that I know goes into a business saying, I want to screw my employees. Right. You know, that may happen at the big levels <laughs> beyond my pay grade, but nobody's trying to do that. But they're stuck because they don't know how to manage well and manage well, first of all, means helping people do a better job. Part of that is defining what is a good job, right. especially with knowledge workers. You might say to somebody, look, I'd like you to do a market analysis on our competitor. Well, that's a nice thing to say, but what does that mean? Do you mean a 10-minute Google search? 
Do you mean bring McKinsey in for a hundred grand to go do secret shoppers and send photos all over the place? What what, what do you mean by yeah, that? Yeah, what is what is a good outcome? That, that define should... the output is the hardest job of managers to define what and that this, output should be. And this is why we can never hire you, John, because my biggest fear is we would hire you and you would immediately go to guys. Your your management sucks. You're terrible. You need to <laughs> you need to replace yourself. That is almost always true. And everybody that hires me, I don't say it that way. <laughs> That's, well, that's good. Yeah, that's yeah. Good. So, and you know, I just, I don't even, what usually happens is I make them better bosses. And that's true because they've been doing it by, most of the people that hire me are good at the product. They're decent at sales, but they don't know how to scale. They yeah. don't know how to replicate what they do in that way. And that's, that's really management. How do you think about scaling means incurring cost? Right. I mean, scaling, building processes and systemizing things means people and technology and those things have a cost. Right. And so the business suffers in the short term for a potential, you know, accretion or increase of value over the medium term or long term. How do you how do you think about balancing those two things? Sometimes it means decreasing costs because you have a high priced individual who's doing a process that can be broken down into three parts, let's say. Well, maybe two of those parts can be done by somebody else. Maybe one of them can be done by software. Maybe one of them can be done by somebody offshore or, or even somebody in the States who's less trained and less expensive, and then they can spend their time doing the more valuable things. So it's in the, the short term, it can be very short depending on the situation, if, if that makes any sense. It's not always an increase in cost, is what you're saying. Not, not immediately. Not no. immediately. It, it, it often does get worse before it gets better, but that's a case of now, okay, now we need to pick the processes that will free up the most of your time. There's an exercise we go if you have a bunch of tasks and you want to change all of them. You go through it and you say, which ones are the low-hanging fruit? Which ones can we do quickly and cheaply? You go through that same list again and you say, which ones will have a big impact if they work? And the ones that those two things line up, those are the ones where you start because it's cheap, quick, and it will have a big impact. Well, yeah, that makes sense. I think that's one of the, the, one of the, one of the things that we've struggled with in our business is the more we delegate at least the legal work, the less money we make. And so there's had to be some balancing of delegation mm -hmm. to other individuals so we could free ourselves to work on the business versus in the business and what that does to the profitability for us in the short term. But it's been, been a little bit of a balancing act because it's not always cost savings, right? You, not everything can be, you, you can't get ROI on things right away. Always. So how, how do you think about those instances where you are saying, hey, well, you're making an investment for the future and making sure you're not over-investing? And... Well, that's where it goes back to what I start with is just what's your goals? How much, you know, how much do you need? How much do you want? And how much are you willing to invest to grow this thing? Because if somebody's making plenty of money and they don't want to work that much harder, they may just replace themselves, take a little bit of a pay cut, and, and right off into the sunset. Other people are saying, wait, no, I have to be the, at that next level. Well, then you have to invest for that level. 
you know, so that's one of the things I would not hear in this podcast, but if I were working with you guys, I would start with what's your goals? How big is it? How much is enough? And how much do you want to put into doing it? And then you can put it in, in some cases, you can put it in two ways, time or money. Pick. Which I think is an important piece of, you know, the entrepreneurship journey, whether you're launching a startup or looking at buying a company, you know, we, we see clients all the time with differing, you know, differing approaches to those goals, right? I want to buy a good business that provides a great income for my family, you know, et cetera. Or I want to buy a business that's going to be a platform for a massive roll-up that I can exit in seven years for, you know, eight figures or, or, or whatever. And having those goals in mind, I think, changes or, or can change the approach to what type of business you're starting. How are you starting it? What are you looking at buying? You know, what, what type of business and metrics do you, do you want to buy for? which I, I think is an important part of that analysis in sort of setting search parameters if you're a searcher, for example, of what those ultimate goals are. And, and even that's more, look, that's look different, right? And more detailed than what you just said. I mean, somebody says, I want to make a, a good living, provide for my family. Well, some people think $100,000 a year for a family of four is a good living. Some yeah. people think 500000 is not. And yeah. so if you can get those very concrete then we can say, okay, that's how we can, that's a good deal. This isn't a good deal, et cetera. Yeah. Like we got about, I'm, you know, I'm, I don't know how much time we have left, but we're, we're running a little bit low. So I want to get after it in the last few minutes here. How, how many small business owners would you say you've worked with over the years? Probably a couple hundred. Hundreds. And yeah. is the average person, is the average small business well run? No. Well, not the ones that come to me anyway. <laughs> Right. I don't know. The, I don't really know the average. There's probably a PhD in that, but most of them are run. Some of them are run terribly. And there's one guy out of, I think, Case Western University who did some studies on this and said the typical entrepreneur leaves a job that they hate to work in the same industry. They compete against their boss and they do worse at it and they make less money <laughs> than they did. That's uh, the- is that, is that what he's suggesting? Well, I don't know what the typical is, but the ones that I work with, they have gotten as far as they can go. And they're usually pressured by either not making enough money or spending too much time in the business. Yeah. Where they, you know, And sometimes they start out when they're younger, they're single, they don't mind spending a lot of time in the business, so they don't systemize it. And then all of a sudden they got a family and they're like, I don't want to do this. So they yeah. either have a bad business or they don't know how to get themselves out. This, the, yeah. When you, yeah. Is the average person cut out to be a small business owner? I mean, is thank God he, no. Because it, if, it, if they were, there wouldn't be anybody to work for us. Well, I mean, you know, I've got this theory that you know, at least in business buying, right? Because we, we we hear it all the time. Oh, you know, you're encouraging people to buy a business, and very few people should actually buy a business, and. My response is always, well, listen, but the, by the time you get to closing out of business through an M&A process, through, through brokers, through a bank, through diligence, through the winding and difficult journey of multiple months of an M&A process, there, there are a lot of off ramps for the wrong people, right? It's very rare oh, yeah. this buying yeah. that the wrong person is going to acquire that business. Although I'll acknowledge that 
doing a deal and operating a business are two fundamentally different things, but I, I do think it's a healthy vetting process. I don't think that that's the same thing for starting a business, right? Starting something from scratch, you know, you're kind of in it before you've had a, had a uh, ramp up process. How does a person know if they're, if they're, you know, based on what you've seen with successful people and people that have struggled and, and gotten as far as they can go, what's, the, what's the difference? I think people should try something on the side and they should try to sell. They should see if they can sell what they think they, you know, their idea of product or service or whatever it is. Everybody, not everybody, but a lot of people think that they need this great idea. And if you look at the business community, most businesses have lots of competition. It's not about doing something unique. It's about doing something that people want to buy a little bit better than the next guy. And so try selling something. If you can't sell, you should not be in business because not just selling to customers, you're going to have to sell to employees. You're going to have to sell your new ideas to existing employees. You're going to have to sell to new hires to come on board with you. So much that we do is selling. And so that's part of it. If they don't like that and I'm sure that in the process of due diligence, people will have run into that, you know, but it, this idea that there's passive income is almost not true at all. Yeah. Uh, even if you're an absentee owner, it weighs on you 24 seven. It's your business. And if you don't like that stress, then great, go to work for somebody else. And there's no shame well, in I that. And I think every absentee owner also has to know that, I mean, if you, if you really are absentee, like that could all vanish in an instant, right? If, if you aren't plugged in every day. And so, I mean, there's, there's some quick turnaround where things can really bite you. If you have gotten to that point where you're truly passive and you're relying on other people to manage things like that, just, you know, I, I, I think put, put backstops in place. So it would take two or three big things to blow up everything. And part of it is whether you, is how much debt you have and personal guarantees, et cetera, which is a, yeah, the whole search searcher thing and entrepreneurs or acquisition is new to me in the last five years, let's say. I mean, people what do you always. What do you, what do you think of all these, you know, somebody said the other day, Hey, the, 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 tr there was a, actually a newsletter written by somebody with a large Twitter account from FinTech or FinTwit. And his article was, all of these quote unquote finance bros who are buying businesses, it's going to end up horribly. Right. And then I wanted to bash the article, but then he was like, go talk to SMB attorney. He knows what he's doing. So I was like, ah, oh, crap. Now I can't. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. So um, tell us what you think about this phenomenon. You know, that anybody the says on Twitter, all of these things or none of these things, or, you know, that's just not true. I mean, that's bumper sticker talk. There are always exceptions. And the, it's, well, okay, if you have never run a business before, you have to learn. If you can't learn how to manage people, if you don't want to learn how to manage people, then you want to hire this mythical, what does the EOS call it? The, the instigator. Tra yeah, Integrate. but the instigate, integrator. You know, yeah. great. Those people just aren't there waiting to be hired by you. You know, you've got to learn some of that. But and some people find that exciting and thrilling and they love it. And some people don't. So those people will quickly sell their companies for maybe less than they bought it for.
And I got, I have one final, I think this is, of all the things we talked about today, I, I want your take on this more than anything. One of the tweets that I send that gets the most traction is this idea that the average entrepreneur's goal is not to build Uber. It's not to build the next Facebook, like, you know, pop culture would have us think about entrepreneurship. It's to build Joe's plumbing and air conditioned business up to a million and a half in earnings and whatever. And that's the real true entrepreneurial goal. But what is it, John? You talk a lot about the first thing you do with entrepreneurs is you say, what are your goals? Based on what you've seen in hundreds of data points, hundreds of business outcomes, what should the average person's goal be to say, hey, and, and setting is not preference. I know some people are okay with 100,000. Some people are okay with 500,000. What is, in your opinion, the best business outcome within reason, right? Not, you know, a $100 million exit, but, you know, I've gotten my yeah. business to 750, 1.5. What, what, what do you think people should be striving for? They should be striving for a level of financial security, which in my opinion, for businesses of the size we're talking about, means having a nest egg outside the company. If you have $100,000 or $500,000 invested in stocks, your ability to deal with the stresses of running a company that Kevin, as you said, could go away for reasons mm -hmm. you can't control, that you have so much more freedom to make long-term decisions than if you need that business to pay your mortgage next month. And so financial security is part of it and part of it comes from the business, but part of it doesn't. And so ultimately the business should fund enough of a life style or a nest egg outside the business to diversify. You know, if you, even if you have a $5 million business or $10 million business, you don't want a hundred percent of your net worth to be in that company. In my opinion, the other thing is time away from work. You want to have the business systemized so that you can pull away from the day-to-day. -day. Even if you love running that business, you need time to think. You need time to focus on things that are important but not urgent. And if you can't do that without everything crashing down around you, if you can't take vacations, if you can't take time off to be with your family or to do those other things, you will burn out. And so that's the second thing. And the third thing is work that you love. Not, we're not going to love everything. That's why you get paid. But you're, you should love most of it. So let me, let me and, push up just a little bit, right? Because we talk about diversifying outside the business. But one of the elements of scaling is reinvesting in the business. Mm -hmm. And my final question for you is, at what stage do you think that the average SMB, small, medium-sized business, main street business should be saying, okay, I've got earnings or EBITDA or whatever cash flow up to 500,000. And so now this is the point based on what I've seen in hundreds of business anecdotes that now I should be taking that cash and I should be investing it in other places. It's not all or nothing. It's a little bit, you should, at the, as much as you can, as early as you can, you should be taking some away and putting it somewhere else. And one of the reasons is there's a guy named Greg Crabtree who has a couple of really interesting books about finance. And one of the things he says is this concept of return on invested capital, ROIC. Most business owners don't know the return on invested capital. And in many cases, 
the business grows despite the money they put in, not because of it. And they don't know that. I literally had a client who had given away the marketing as a SaaS company and he'd given away the marketing part to somebody else and was focusing on other things. When she left, he took it back over and he said, you know what? I'm spending $90,000 on Facebook ads. I'm not getting a thing for it. And he didn't really know that because he hadn't done the, the analysis. And he saved $90,000. He tested it, obviously. He pulled, pulled back his ads. Business sure. didn't go to hell. And that is so common in business. People think just because I'm putting it back in, I'm, doing, I'm making a good investment. And sometimes yeah. you're not. Yeah. Got it. So interesting. Case so, by case. Yeah. So it depends is what you're saying, John. Everything depends. And that's what that's you make a great lawyer, John. As much <laughs> much as I love SMB Twitter, my big frustration with it is nobody is saying it depends because it depends doesn't make a good tweet. <laughs> yeah. Well, it doesn't, right? And it also would get buried by the algorithm, and that's part of the problems yeah. of media and well. So, I don't but know, but threads is going to change all that. So, yeah, for sure. It's insanely right. right. So yeah. What do you think about that, yeah. John? Let's, let's let's go back to that topic. And Kevin, feel free to jump in. I know I've been consolidating the conversation. You're dominating the conversation. But what do you right, think? Right. These young guys that are buying these small businesses, do you think it's going to work out? And I, I mean, if you, you no, we're going to we're going to edit this out. Just so you know. So. Yeah, I think a lot of them will. I think you know what's different for people who came out of MBA programs or private equity or whatever. They are looking at spreadsheets and cells and numbers thinking that those are replicable and they don't realize there's people behind those. That's one thing. The other thing is the people that they have grown up with since college have been very ambitious and focused on their career path and looking for the future. And if they're buying blue collar businesses, many of those people are not. They want to do a good job. They want to get paid well and they want to go fishing on the weekend. They, if you say, look, I can you know, increase your salary by X, or I can move you into management, or you've got a career path. Some of them don't care. And that's not a bad thing. It's just a very different thing. And you need to work with those people. Um, Kevin spends too much time fishing, frankly. I'm glad you brought that up. That's yeah. <laughs> an important topic. I, I want to say something that I said to Kevin before you guys got on, is I have a scoop for you. And Let's that is, I am writing a book on output thinking, which is looking at your company through the outputs that people produce and those outputs fall into those seven buckets. And how do you systemize those outputs and scale those systems? And that book should be out in the fall. And so I'm at that point, you will hear a lot about it on Twitter if Twitter's still around. Um, well, I'm excited, John. I, I, I know I've checked, I, I forget what name I suggested and I'm sure whatever name I suggest you probably went with a different one because that's uh, typically my advice is, is taken but no, um, it was good you talked about systems which is which is one of the top two so you did I made it into the top two Kevin did you hear that which yeah. definitively means you did that. not choose my choice but that's okay but no I'm, I'm excited to read it John I think you know you had contributed just in, in case anybody's wondering you contributed previously to the master class that we did back in 2021 yep. and a really I thought a, a really interesting piece. And for me, coming out of the legal world, and I suspect that this is the case for a lot of our listeners and for a lot of our clients that are, are coming, even if you, you know, folks that have done an MBA, I'm sure they've thought about this a lot. The rest of us do not think about systemizing and, you know, putting in processes and scaling a business, right? 
and it's simple but deadly. And so that's out there, and I suspect we'll probably run it again with your support through this round of the masterclass if you're interested in contributing again. It would be. And I'm actually working on what can you do in the due diligence phase to see how systematic the company is. And I, that's what I wrote a little bit about it when I first did that for you, but I'm working it into more of a comprehensive checklist because you're usually you can't talk to everybody in the company, which is where you'd really want to learn this stuff. But yep. what can you talk to? What can you look for to see how systemized? And it's not always bad if you're buying a company that it's not systematic, because if you can put those systems in place easily, you can increase the value ex exponentially. If they are particular systems. Incentive of, of the business diligence, right, is you want a business that works. And, it, and there's that in actual business that, you know, I take it over and I don't need the prior owner. But then, you know, if there are areas about, you know, everybody tweet, the tweet about the fax machine, you know, and all of it, you know, they've been doing it on fax. So I'm going to be able to outfox them and do make more money. But, okay. you know, I think it's a lot more detailed than that. And something that our buyers will often say to us, hey, what do you think of this business? And my response is, read your engagement letter where it says, I don't have thoughts on your business. But that would be helpful on the, on the search end of things as well. Yeah, no, I think yeah. that'll be hugely valuable. Well, cool. John, let, let's conclude. Where can people find you and learn more about you, learn more about CEO Bootcamp and, and what you're doing, and particularly those who own businesses or are about to own businesses? How can they learn more about what you do and, and engaging with you, if that's something they, they want to do. Sure. The, my website is ceobootcamp.com, but the best place probably is my Twitter profile at better CEO. And in my profile, there's a link tree link, which has several things where you can sign up for a free newsletter and you can engage in a 45 minute free coaching call. And that's probably the best way for people to get to know me and for me to get to know if I can help people. Cause I never take on a client if I don't feel like I can help them and they don't feel like I can help them as well. So add better CEO and Twitter. I just signed Kevin up. So Kevin, you've got a 45 minute call with John on Monday. So just make sure that's on your team. I love that. We're going to go, we're going to go deep on systematizing professional services. Yep. Really helpful okay. conversation, John. I think, I think listeners are going to love it. Really appreciate the time. John Cypher. Yes, it is. Is that right? John, John Cypher, not Cypher, CEO Bootcamp or at Better CEO on Twitter. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, hey, John. Pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of Mundane Millionaires. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, make sure to follow Mundane Millionaires wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. See you next time.